Father, we want you to do a work here. We want your spirit to convict us, to encourage us, to call us to holiness. Lord, we're broken and we're sinful, and we need you. And Father, we don't want to come here today just to sit down, hear something, and then leave. We're here to worship you, and we want to be changed. So Spirit, change us. Use your word. Show us your glory in your word. Show us that you are mighty. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Is there hope for someone like you? Have your faults and your failures found you out? Have your shortcomings been put on display for all to see? Have you been given so much natural ability only to use it recklessly? Has your love for Christ been weighed in the balance and found wanting? Have you had great spiritual victories only to be followed right after with great failures? Have you resolved in your heart to stay true to the Lord only to flake when push comes to shove? Have you, as a result, resigned yourself to gloomy despondency because of your repeated failures, because they have re, uh, discouraged you from rising once more from the dirt to press on? Have you ever thought, this time for sure, God is done with me? I've blown it for the last time. He wants nothing to do with me. And every time I look up to heaven, all I see is his disapproving gaze. I'm oppressed by his divine disdain. What hope is there for me? There was a man once who thought these thoughts and felt these pains, and his name was Peter. He was a man who wore his heart on his sleeve, and you always knew what he was thinking, for better or for worse. But if you've noticed in your own life, this is the type of person that we're naturally drawn to. We see ourselves in them. They're the ones who say what everyone else is thinking but are too scared to say. And a lot of times they go too far. But at least we know that they're sincere. And because they always voice their opinions and concerns, we naturally begin to trust them. And it naturally gives them a place of prominence and leadership because we see them as representing us. And all of this was true of Peter. If you go and you look at all the lists of, of the apostles, Peter's name always comes first. And Throughout the Gospels, he is always the spokesperson and the representative for the Twelve. So if someone's going to speak for the disciples, it's going to be Peter. The Gospels portray him as someone who is always quick to act and who speaks first, thinks later. And then we also see that he had a part in a profitable uh, fishing business together with his brother Andrew, James and John, and their father, Zebedee. We know that because, well, first off, they're fishermen, but they also had the ability to hire servants. So they were actually in the business of employing others within their fishing business. 
We know that he was married, um, and he had his home in Galilee. And as we look back in history, we know him as the great apostle who was seen as the pillar of the church, or one of the pillars of the church. That's how Paul describes him in Galatians. And yet what we see is that he was a man so much like ourselves. He was so completely human. He has some great moments of faith, and he has some great moments of failure. And yet it is this Peter whom the Lord called to be his disciple and to lead the early church. In Peter, we see the grace of God shine through. He truly does take a crooked stick, and he draws straight lines. He uses broken and sinful people to accomplish his purposes. Now, we're not going to be able to do a full biography of Peter. Um, I don't know exactly what I was thinking when I thought, man, I can do Peter in one week. Uh, You can spend several weeks uh, studying the life of Peter with great profit. Uh, But today, what we'll look at are uh, four significant moments in his life that showcase his, his faith, his failures, but above all, God's grace in the midst of it. So first, we'll look at his calling, how it all began. We'll look at his great confession, a couple of them, actually, and yet confrontation. Thirdly, we'll look at his denial, his darkest moment. And fourthly, we'll look at his restoration. So we begin uh, with his calling, and we have a couple of accounts in the Gospels of Jesus meeting with Peter. The first one is in John 1, uh, 35 through 42. I'll just summarize that one. But we have it recorded there as his first encounter with the Lord. His brother Andrew had been a disciple of John the Baptist. He had followed John around, and at one point during John's ministry, Jesus is walking past them. And John cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, at that point, Andrew says, See you, John. I'm following that guy. And so he becomes a disciple of Jesus. He follows him. He stays the evening with him. And shortly after, he goes and finds Peter, his brother, and says, Come, we've found the Messiah. And he takes Peter to Jesus. And in that encounter, Jesus claims his authority over Peter and gives him a new name. He says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And Peter and Cephas, it's just the Greek or the Aramaic word for rock. It conveys strength and stability, which will be ironic as we go through Peter's life. And what's interesting is that we're not told of Peter's response here. We don't, we're not told that he immediately left everything and followed Jesus. Uh, we're not even told that he necessarily believed him. John leaves it there with Jesus giving him a new name. And apparently he didn't start following Jesus uh, as a disciple after their first meeting. Because we see their next meeting uh, in Luke chapter 5. And I would encourage you to turn there. And here, Peter is back at his fishing business. And it seems that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the same event here, but we're going to look at Luke's account because it's the fullest of of the three. And what we see is Jesus teaching the word of God at the Sea of Galilee with a large crowd eagerly surrounding him. Luke 5, verses 1 to 3. 
On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So he's there on the beach with this great crowd around him, and it's gotten so large that it's difficult for everyone to hear him well. And so he looks around on the beach, and he sees these two boats, and one of them belongs to Peter, and he had already met Peter earlier. And so he gets in and asks Peter to put out a little bit from the shore, and what he's going to do is he's going to use the acoustic properties of the water to naturally amplify his voice so that everyone on the shore who's listening to him can hear him. And we're not told what Jesus is teaching about here because I think his teaching right here is not the most important part of the story. The most important part of the story comes after his teaching. We continue reading in verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. At this point, Jesus is still in the boat. He goes ahead and finishes his teaching and dismisses the crowd, and he turns his attention uh, to Peter and says, look, we're already out. Why don't we just go out a little bit further and try some fishing? And we see Peter's response, and it's less than eager. Notice verse 5, and Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. So here's Peter, the fisherman, who knows what he's about, and he's just had a rough night. He and his companions have fished all night with nothing to show for it. His eyelids are probably heavy heavy from from the long night. It's possible he's a bit embarrassed uh, that he's come up empty. And knowing Peter, he uh, probably does have already a little bit of a short fuse. And he's already allowed Jesus to use his boat for, for teaching. And now comes the command, let's go fishing. Well, as we see in the text, Peter obviously recognized Jesus as having some kind of authority. He calls him master. But like many of us who just can't be content with silently obeying, Peter has to make sure that Jesus knows that he's really obeying him just just out of deference for his authority, even though Peter, as the expert in fishing, knows that it's not going to amount to anything. Peter's not expecting anything from this. He's obeying with a sigh, and he's in for a surprise as we continue reading in verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, I don't know how many fish it takes to sink a boat that is specifically designed for fishing, much less two of them, uh, but I think it's a lot. And so this is something out of the ordinary. This is something that is very clearly a supernatural demonstration of Jesus' overflowing power. This is a revelation of Jesus' identity. This is more than a man. This is the Christ. This is the God-man. This is Yahweh himself in human form, and he's standing in your boat, Peter. 
Have you begun to blush yet from those words you said earlier? I mean, there is some irony here, Peter. You thought you knew better than Jesus and that you were maybe doing him a kindness by deferring to his authority. But now you see him for who he is. You've seen that he is the sovereign Lord who controls the fish of the sea, that very same sea that you know so well. But in all your mastery, Peter, you can't make the fish jump into your nets. You're just a man, Peter. You're just a man standing in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. Tell me, Peter, what are you going to do? Well, we see his response. In verses 8 through 10. But when P Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. In an instant, Peter recognized the holiness and authority of the one who stood in front of him. In an instant, he recognized how dirty and filthy and putrid his soul was. When confronted with the holiness of God, there's no room for superiority. There's no room for boasting. And there's no even thought of escape. There is only collapsing under the immense weight of his glory. You'll remember when Isaiah saw the glory of God in a vision. And we read this this morning in Sunday school. He heard the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you'll remember that Isaiah cried out upon seeing this scene, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter saw the King and fell down at his feet. Have you? Have you come to terms with this Jesus? He's the King. Have you felt the crushing weight of his holiness? Have you seen yourself as a broken and sinful man before him? Have you seen yourself as unable and unworthy to stand in the presence of the Almighty? See it now. Cast yourself down upon your knees and cry out, Oh Lord, I am a sinful man. But you might say, He's too holy, and, and I'm too sinful. Will He look upon me with favor? with mercy? Is there hope for me? Jesus is holy, but he is loving and he is kind. He will lift up your face and he will call you my child. Look what he said to Peter in verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. In Matthew's account, he tells the group, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. When Peter humbled himself and confessed his sin, Jesus didn't rebuke him. Jesus didn't turn him away. But he said, don't be afraid. 
I've got a job for you. The same invitation is extended to us today. Jesus has said, follow me. Will we stay in our sin or will we rise, leave everything behind, and give him everything, following him the rest of our life? We see Peter's response in verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And so that's how it begins. Peter has a great start. He recognizes the authority of the Lord. He recognizes his sinfulness. And he makes the commitment, Lord, I'm following you. But what does the rest of his story look like? Well, we go on then to his confession and his confrontation. And at this point, Peter has become a full-time disciple of Jesus, the rabbi. Right? He went everywhere Jesus went. He listened to all his teachings, and he would be expected to commit those things to memory, and he would be expected to uh, imitate the way of life of the master. And so during the next three years, Peter would eat, drink, travel, and sleep with Jesus. And he would have experienced some remarkable things during that time. He would see all of Jesus' countless healings and miracles. And at one point, Jesus would even delegate authority to Peter to be able to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, and to heal all kinds of diseases. Peter experienced all of that. He would have some great moments of faith. You'll remember in John 6, after Jesus taught some hard sayings in Capernaum, Many of the disciples left him and said, what is this whole thing about eating your flesh and drinking your blood? That doesn't make sense. We're out of here. And Jesus turns and asks the 12 if they want to go away as well. And Peter, as a spokesman for the 12, has a wonderful answer. John 6, 68 to 69 says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. A great moment of faith, a great confession. We see at another time, Peter would have another confession of faith. Matthew 16, and if you would, turn there. We'll follow this passage along. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ! the Son of the living God. And notice Jesus' answer to him. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
this is a marvelous moment for Peter. Right, he was kind of probably uh, brushing his shoulder and saying, ooh, that was a good one. He was thoroughly commended by Jesus for his true and his right confession. He had real spiritual insight that had been given to him by the Father. He confidently confessed the identity of Jesus as the Christ, that is the Messiah, and as the Son of God. He knew that Jesus was more than just a man, but that he was the very Son of God. And he heard those words from Jesus, Blessed are you. And in the very same scene, Jesus goes on and starts talking about his own death. Notice verse 21. <clears throat> From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Yeah, this didn't line up with Peter's plans. The same Peter who earlier was saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord, now thinks that he is so bold as to be in the presence of Christ and feel justified in pulling Jesus up close to him and to begin rebuking him to his face in front of all the other disciples. Notice verse 22. And Peter took him aside. And like I mentioned, that word is not necessarily like, oh, come, come over here, Peter, uh, in, and let's talk privately. It's taking someone to yourself. You're drawing them close here in front of all the disciples. And he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You see, Jesus needed some, some correction here. Peter obviously had the better plan. Jesus just needed to see the sense in Peter's words. And he just needed to come around to his way of seeing things. Jesus, I've got this figured out. You stick to your nice little spiritual sayings like, judge not lest you be judged and, and um, turn the other cheek. But look, I'll handle the real world stuff. There's no need for talk of persecution and dying and any of that. Just follow my lead, Jesus, and we'll get where we want to go. Peter's words were not innocent. He's standing in the presence of the Christ. And Jesus the Christ is teaching. And he is ignoring those words. He rebuked the maker of heaven and earth and told him, I don't like your plan. Who are you, Peter, to challenge the Almighty? Isaiah would say in chapter 14, verse 27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? But that's what Peter was trying to do, to turn back the hand of the Lord. And we do the same. How many times have we thought, Lord, I've got it all figured out. Follow my plan. We'll be set. Instead of humbly and prayerfully following Jesus, Jesus and accepting whatever comes from his hand. Jesus' response for this kind of attitude is piercing. Notice verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, 
Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had set himself up as an adversary to Christ. What he thought was so trivial was in reality treason. And when we have our minds set on the things of man rather than the things of God, we are a hindrance to his purposes. And as we continue in the life of Peter, we see that the rest of his time with Christ is much the same. Sometimes great moments of faith, at other times great moments of failure, much like the rest of us. And yet, even in the rebukes, Jesus didn't say, all right, Peter, you're done. Stop being my disciple. Go away. You finished. He was patient with Peter, and he's patient with us as well. And so we don't give up. We're not to be discouraged. We're to accept the rebuke and press on in his compassion. But what about those times when you think, there's no coming back from this one. This time, he is done with me. What about those times when we go so far as to deny the Lord? There's no getting around it. Those moments are painful. Those moments are heartbreaking because you see yourself for who you are. And it's not pretty. And we know that Peter had one of those moments too. This was his darkest moment. In the upper room, on the very night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus would tell Peter a foreboding message in Luke chapter 22. And if you would turn there, we'll follow this one along as well. And here and there, we'll mix in some passages uh, from Mark to, to fill it out. <clears throat> Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31. Jesus tells Peter a foreboding message. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your, strengthen your brothers. Jesus warned Peter what was about to happen, but he affirmed that he was interceding on his behalf so that his faith would not fail. This would be remarkable considering Peter's upcoming denial. Jesus ensured that even in Peter's denial, he would not be lost. His faith would remain and he would turn again. And when he had, he was to go and strengthen the other disciples. But you know Peter. He always knows better. And he says to Jesus in verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. It's a bold statement. And Mark adds that Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. But Jesus goes on in verse 34 of Luke chapter 22. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. 
or deny three times that you know me. And once again, Mark in chapter 14, verses 30 to 31, adds a couple more details here. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, I want you to hold on to that. You will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So they're up there in the upper room. They have the Passover meal. The Lord's Supper is instituted. And then afterwards, they sing a hymn. And Jesus leads his disciples to the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane is, so that he could pray. And Peter, who is extremely committed, falls asleep three times while Jesus is there praying. The Lord had instructed him to pray, and already he is falling asleep. Shortly after, you'll remember Judas comes, and he brings a band of soldiers and betrays Jesus with a kiss. And we read in Luke chapter 22, jumping down to verses 54 to 55, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And so here, Peter would have his opportunity to show his resolve and commitment to Jesus. Would he stay true to that bold statement that he made earlier that night? Well, we see what happens in verse 56. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Already, Peter had denied him once. If we compare this with Mark, he tells us that at this point, after his first denial, that Peter goes out into the gateway and the rooster crows the first time. And what's interesting is, in church history, the tradition is that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, is actually Peter's account of the stories. In other words, it seems that Peter, looking back on these events, had remembered the rooster crowing that first time. But he didn't do anything about it. He was there denying Jesus, and he heard the rooster. He recognized it. He had a chance to stop. But he tuned out the rooster and kept on in his denial. And this wasn't just a short period of time, right? It wasn't just like one right after the other. There was some time that passed. He paid no attention to the rooster. It wasn't enough to wake him from his stupor. His heart remained hardened in sin, even while all the, so- all the signs were pointing to his treachery. Luke's account continues in verse 58. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not his second denial. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, 
the rooster crowed. Mark tells us that he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the the rooster crowed a second time. Despite all his boastful, confident words, Peter had blatantly denied Jesus three times. In the third denial, he was invoking a curse upon himself. He held nothing back in his denial. It was a full-throated denial. And to make matters worse, you think about what is going on in the high priest's house. Jesus is being falsely tried. He is being mocked. He is being beaten. And Jesus is out, or, and, and Peter is out in the courtyard denying him vehemently. And as we continue in Luke, I think we see one of the most heartbreaking and piercing sentences in all the Bible. Verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I imagine that the Lord's gaze cut to Peter's heart. He was looking straight into the eyes of the one whom he swore never to leave, never to deny. I don't think Jesus has here a surprised look. I think it was one of grief and sorrow. He knew Peter would deny him, but it didn't lessen the pain. I imagine that Peter's denial there hurt Jesus more than all the wounds he received that night. Jesus was destined to suffer alone. His friend had betrayed him. His disciples had scattered. And bold, fearless, loyal Peter had denied him three times. Verse 61 says, And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Have you sinned? Have you compromised? Have you betrayed your Lord? Have you denied him? Have you said, no, Jesus, you will not have my life? Have you driven headlong into darkness and despair away from the light? Have you dug deep into the depths to avoid the love of Christ? Has the Lord peered into your soul and said, oh, child, why do you pierce me? Is there any hope? Is there any hope? But we remember, why was Jesus, even at that moment, on his way to the cross? It was to atone for sin. It was to atone for Peter's sin. It was to atone for your sin and my sin. He died for Peter. He died for you. If only you'll have him. If only you'll receive him. If only you'll trust him. Cry out to Jesus who is all merciful. He'll not turn you away. He died for his sheep and you are his sheep if you hear his voice and you follow him. Even our darkest moments were atoned for by Christ's death. He knew what he was carrying. He's not surprised by your denials. He knew the sins we would commit and he still died for us. After such a fall, though, 
Is there any hope for restoration? Yes, maybe Jesus died for your sins, but after a failure like that, are you consigned to an ongoing life of shame? I mean, after that, is it just your duty to slouch through life in guilt with your head down? Or can God's grace truly restore you to joyful and obedient service? I'm certain that it was a long and tortuous three days for Peter as Jesus laid in that tomb. I can't imagine the nightmares that he had as he replayed his denials over and over again. I wonder how many times his mind flashed back to that time when Jesus' eyes met his own. But the end of John lets us know that Peter's story doesn't end in despair and shame. The risen Jesus would restore him to service and to ministry. At this point, Jesus has already risen from the dead and has shown himself a few times. And it seems that um, even though we don't have it explicitly described for us in Scripture, we have it alluded to, but that Jesus had appeared one-on-one with Peter. Find that in Luke 24, 34, and 1 Corinthians 15, 5. He came to Peter one-on-one first to deal with him privately and to deal with his sin. But now, sometime later, Jesus appears again to Peter and some of the other disciples at the Sea of Galilee in order to publicly restore him. He goes back to the time he first called him and has a scene very similar. So if you would turn to John chapter 21, and we'll start in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night, that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Sounds like a familiar situation. This is how it all started. But apparently only one person recognized the significance of it right away. Verse 7 tells us that the disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. Just think, the first time that this happened, Peter responded by saying, Depart from me. But now we see a remarkably different response in Peter. We continue reading, When Simon Peter 
heard that it was the Lord, he put on his arm, outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So Peter dives in, sprints his hundred-yard freestyle with all his might just to get to Jesus. He leaves behind one of the greatest catches just so that way he can get to Jesus a little bit quicker. And when they get to the shore, they find that Jesus is sitting there next to the fire with breakfast all ready for them. It's such a peaceful and calm scene, even after the denial. He's inviting them to breakfast. He says, here's some food. Fill yourself. Verse 9 continues, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I can't imagine what that meal was like. Um, Just knowing everything that had transpired previously. And here, Jesus isn't rebuking them. He's saying, come have breakfast. He's not going to deal with anything until after the meal. But once they have finished the meal, now it's time to get down to business. The, tar- the, the hard talk had to happen. And now with six other disciples around, Jesus turns to Peter and begins to question him. Verse 15, when they had finished, Peter, Je- <laughs> when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? I don't think he's talking about the the fish here. I think he's talking about the other six disciples. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You'll remember that Peter had previously stated quite boldly, even if all others fall away, I will not. And Jesus here is saying, do you love me more than these like you said you did? And since he had denied Jesus three times here, he calls Peter to affirm his love three times. And each time Jesus instructs him to feed my sheep. And you'll remember that before Peter's denial, Jesus had said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, Strengthen your brothers. This is what Jesus was calling, to, calling him to now. And then finally, he lets him know 
that Peter would glorify God through his death. Peter said, Lord, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. Now Jesus says, let's put that to the test. Verse 18 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. The early church tells us that Peter did indeed die for his faith, being crucified upside down upon his own request because he did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. He would see, according to tradition, his own wife crucified before him, calling her to remain steadfast. And with this certain death in, uh, revealed to Peter, Jesus then presses him at the end of verse 19 and says, And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. But Peter, even in his restoration, he's still human. He turns and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, uh, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, but what about this man? Jesus said to him, it's none of your concern. If it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? What is your job? Follow me. You follow me. Jesus' command to Peter is to follow him in life and in death. And what we see in the book of Acts is how God takes this man, fills him with his spirit, and calls him to obey the command to follow. Peter would obey, not perfectly, but faithfully. By the help of the Holy Spirit, God would take this crooked stick and draw a straight line. And he can do the same with us. So is there hope for someone like you? Someone like me? Someone who has failed more times than I can count? There is. Do we need to fear God's contempt? Not if we're in Christ. Have you gone too far for the love of Christ to redeem you? You have not. You have not. He knew in advance all your sin when he died on the cross. And so what is our response to his love? We follow him. We leave all behind and we follow him. That is our task. That is how we respond in gratitude to the Lord's love. Let's pray. Father, do a work, O oh Lord, in us. We are broken, we are crooked, we are sinful. But, O oh Lord, you are kind, you are gracious. 
Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for being patient with us. Lord, enable us to follow you. May we put away all the things of this earth and look to you and follow you. In life and in death, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.